are all God's craftsmanship, his handiwork. We're vessels he molds for his glory, for his work, and he is making all things new. He is redeeming all things, and he is restoring hope, joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness in us. He is resurrecting our former broken and sullied lives into lives worth living, lives worthy of his name, lives transformed by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. In short, we are who he says we are. You, me, us, we, we are. We are resurrection people. Well, good morning, Heritage. How you doing? <clears throat> doing good? Doing good? Hey, I want to just, uh, just say welcome to everybody across our network. People of uh, Bettendorf, thank you so much for being here. Men of Kiwani, we send our love to you. Uh, those of you who are checking us out online, welcome. And those of you in Rock Island, so good to see you, so good to worship with you so far today. And I'm just expectant that God has some more for us. Uh, today. My name is Josh Howard. I get to serve as the assistant campus pastor right here at the Rock Island campus. And uh, I can't believe that we are already more than halfway through the month of May. I feel like this year has gone really fast. And I can't believe that we're already in week four of this series that we've been journeying through called We Are Resurrection People. Now, I was uh, walking in the lobby here at Rock Island a couple of weekends ago, and I saw the, you know, the resurrection couch that's out there and decided to go ahead and try to take my own picture. And so I wanted to show the picture that I came up with for this. <laughs> we are resurrection people. Probably not what they had in mind for branding, but uh, I was posting this on Facebook, and there was a kind of the idea of maybe I should do like a caption contest and just post it and let people kind of decide what, what's going on here. And uh, I wasn't brave enough to do that, but I did come up with the caption, and the caption is this, that this is really what Cardinal fans look like in, during the month of May. It, it, this is, it's, it's bad, right? Last time I taught they were in first, now they're in fourth. It's just, it's bad. But there's always hope for resurrection, right? I don't know, I don't know. But enough of picture, weird pictures, enough of baseball. We are in the midst of this really great series, this journey that we've been on regarding us as being resurrection people. And I, I have loved the timing of this particular series because all across the world, there are churches that, uh, that participate in a season between Easter and Pentecost, and it's called, uh, it's called Eastertide. And uh, it's something that I didn't really even learn about until I was in my late 20s, but it's this, this really intentional focus on the stories of the resurrection. And I love that because the resurrection is worth talking about more than just Easter morning, amen? I mean, this is, this is such a, a huge monumental event. And so I've really loved that we've been journeying in this series together where we get to intentionally talk about resurrection over and over and over, just to, to be reminded of the power of that and the implications of that for us in the here and now. It's been such a great journey. Now, there's been uh, several anchors uh, during the series, but there's been one anchor in particular that Pastor Sean introduced to us. It's a compelling statement that was said or written by Barbara Johnson that, that goes like this. It says, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Now, I love this statement because, yes, 
we are Easter people, amen? We, we are resurrection people. And uh, another anchor of the series, another scriptural anchor of the series is, has been Romans 8.11. It says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Friends, make no mistake, we are Easter people. But I also appreciate the honesty of acknowledging that we live in a Good Friday world. It's a broken world where Good Friday things happen all the time. There is sickness and there is sadness, there is pain, there is loss, and there is evil. And over the past two weeks, Pastor Sean has just done this beautiful job of of reminding us that because we have access to the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, there is always hope Because we are empowered to rise up through difficult circumstances, there will always be hope because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And that's been such a rich reminder. In fact, I would say that if the the key words from the last couple of weeks from Pastor Sean's teachings, maybe uh, two weeks ago it was empowered, last week would be rise. I would say this week, where we're going to kind of spend the conversation, I I would sum it up by saying together is the key word. In fact, you could put it all together and you could say, we have been empowered to rise together as a body of believers. It's even tied up in our, our sermon title, the, the, the series title, We Are. It's plural, that there, there is a communal implication in all of this, that we are in this together. We need to shift from me to we, that we are in this body of believers together. And so the, the major question that I want us to wrestle with today is what does it look like to be in a resurrection tribe? What does that look like? What what does that feel like? What what, what should be some of the the things that make make a, a resurrection tribe a resurrection tribe? Now, the early church, they had to figure this out pretty quickly. They had to figure it out on the fly. They were coming off of the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost and, and all of those really big events that, that just, I, I can't even imagine how fast it felt like life was going in those early moments of the church. And so they were dealing with a lot. They were doing a lot. But we get this really rich and beautiful passage in Acts chapter 2 about how they were working through community. And I want to read this over us, and I want you to just look for those, those places of communal aspects that are built into Acts chapter 2. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All of the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You notice the community buzzwords that are tied up in this passage, fellowship, that they met together, they worshiped together, they shared what they had. In fact, the word shared is in this passage four separate times. This is such a compelling look at what a beautiful, unified community can look like. But you don't have to read very far into the New Testament to realize that this dynamic doesn't last very long, that 
eventually relational cracks happen as, as more people are gathered into the church. And, and we can see this when we start to read the letters that are sent to churches in the New Testament where there's just a lot of focus on communal health. There's a lot of focus on, you know, love and patience and bearing with each other. And it, re it reminds me that remaining in healthy community, it takes an awful lot of work. Amen? It, it just does. It takes work to stay unified, to stay in harmony with each other. Because here's the reality. We live in a Good Friday world, and even as Easter people, there are times, unfortunately, when we even treat each other in a Good Friday kind of way. And so that's kind of what we're wrestling with. And, and when we look at what does a healthy resurrection tribe look like, I would like to to suggest, and this, if you're tra tracking on your notes, this is the first fill-in, I'd like to suggest that a resurrection tribe always pursues and protects unity. Always pursues and protects unity. This is so incredibly important, and I should mention, this is also something that Jesus specifically prayed for. One of the, the great prayers that we see from Jesus, it's found in John 17. It's a high priestly prayer, and he, he prays a, a lot of different things. But there's one, one section where he prays for future believers. He prays for you and for me. And his prayer for us is so telling and so beautiful. And I, I want you to hear this. It says this. This is Jesus. I pray that they, that, that us, we, me and you, that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. This is such a fascinating look. Uh, and, and, and what's most interesting to me about this prayer is that, that Jesus actually gives us the reason for why unity is so important, that, that it actually helps build credibility for us to share the message of Jesus with this world. It actually builds credibility for us as representatives of him as we go into the world and share. See, if we've been empowered to be a carrier of the resurrection, then we, and particularly to be a carrier of, a, of the resurrection into the world, then we should be very good at passing resurrection life on to each other as well. We should be Easter people with each other. And, and if resurrection people can't find unity, who really can? I mean, we have been empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And if we cannot find a way to unify, then this world really is in trouble. Now, another thing that I love about this prayer, and it's kind of a, a different way of thinking about things, is that we can actually play a part in answering Jesus's prayer. That we can actually play a part in the Father's plan to answer this prayer from Jesus. You know, a lot of times we think about, oh, Jesus is going to answer this prayer for me. Well, how about this? We can actually be a part of answering one of his direct prayers to the Father. But the follow-up question is this, how do we do this? How do we pursue unity? 
Now, last week, Pastor Sean read a, a quick passage of scripture over us that I want to I roll back, loop back into again today. And uh, it's in the book of Galatians, and it sets up this dynamic of fruit of the Spirit. And I want to read this over us because I think this is really, really helpful. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, if we are filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, it stands to reason that the litmus test for all of our words and our actions and our attitudes rest in whether or not we are producing what we know to be the fruit of the Spirit. How do we pursue and protect unity? Well, for starters, I would say we need to let the fruit be our guide. We need to let the fruit be our guide. This, this actually, this passage actually frames our rules of engagement, both with with each other within the body, but also how we should engage the world around us. And it causes me to ask the question in my own life, are my words, are my actions, are my attitudes producing any and all of these nine characteristics of spirit-led life? And if not, then I need to confess and admit that I am out of alignment with the way that spirit is leading me to live. Here's an example of this, and it's, it's not flattering, but about, I don't know, about a year ago, I was driving in Rock Island. We were up by Harris Pizza. I was with my daughter, who was probably 16, maybe 15 at the time. She was riding shotgun with me, and uh, we were wanting to take a right off of a busy road, and I saw a family of five. It was a mom, a grandma, and three small kids who were trying to cross right at the, the corner where I was trying to take a right. And so... I wanted to be a good Samaritan, and I'm like, I waved them through. I wanted, you know, I wanted to give, let them go first, and I, I let them go, and, and they got clear, and I started to take my right-hand turn. <clears throat> Only that, in the middle of the turn, in a kind of a snap second, I noticed that this mom turns around and gives me a death gaze. Like, she shoots daggers at me, like, if looks could kill, I'd be slaughtered, like, it'd be bad. And then I see her very, very specifically mutter something under her breath right at me. And, and you know, this is all happening very quickly in my head. Uh, and I'm wondering, what, what did I do wrong? And for whatever reason, on that particular day, I decided to ask. So I stopped a fourth of the way through my turn. I rolled down my window and I said, did I do something wrong here? And she said, yeah, you didn't give us right away. And, you know... I'm feeling the anger. Uh, it's, it's building within me. And I turn around and I go, I most certainly gave you right away. What are you talking about? And she's like, you have to wait for all five of us to get to the opposite corner before you can take your turn. And I'm like, you know, I don't remember ever learning that. I don't know that that's a rule. I know it's been a lot of years since driver's ed, but I, I gave you right away in this. It just, I did. And, and this interchange went back and forth, I'm not kidding, probably about seven, eight times, and the volume grew, you know, it got louder, and it got much more rude, and much more cold, and it just, it, it turned into this thing. And eventually, I noticed behind me, traffic was backing up, and I'm like, I gotta be done with this. So I just yelled something like, you're crazy, or, you know, <laughs> you're, you're so ridiculous, and I roll up my window, and I drive away. And, uh, and so I'm, for whatever reason, that stuck with me for a couple of days. And, you know, I, I think I was, I was in it for justification at first. So what did I do when I got home? I Googled it, right? I, I, I researched it. Is this really a rule? 
and the internet was like 50-50. Like some people kind of depend on where you were and all that stuff, but, but it was inconclusive. So I went straight to the source. I went to a police officer buddy who works at the Rock Island Police Department, and I asked him for advice. Like, did I handle this correctly? And he's like, yeah, actually, you know, you gave them space, you took your turn, you know, they're not dead, you're, you're good, you know, right? It, it's, it's, they're, it's great. In fact, he even mentioned, if you wait long enough, you're gonna back track up, traffic up behind you, that causes problems behind you. So I think you can take your turn as soon as you're clear. And so I'm like, that's it, I'm right. I, I can let this go emotionally, I can let the frustration go. It, it's over, it's good. Only that it wasn't. It kept hanging on in my soul, and I think things started to crystallize when my wife kind of sidled up to me a couple of days later and said, so Emily told me about something. <clears throat> and then she proceeded to say, you know, Emily said she had never seen you talk to somebody like that before, that she'd never seen you uh, engage with somebody in quite that way that, that when you roll down your window, it actually, <laughs> it actually scared her. It, it, it tensed her up. And she was just, she was, she was actually really nervous about the whole thing. And, and right there, it kind of crystallized in my brain that, okay, God, you, you have something for me in this moment where, where maybe I was technically right, but because of the way that I handled it with this other person, there was a negative sum game in the whole thing that, that I actually, I, I, I cost that family something. That, that I, as I run it through a, a fruit of the spirit analysis, that I actually was not acting as a spirit-led person. I was acting as a, an anger-led person or a self-led person or a, a prideful-led person. You know, love, joy, nope, those things were not a part of that situation. Peace, that, that it was the opposite of peaceful. You think about the, the other fruits, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. No, those, those things were not present in that moment. Uh, you know, the, the gentleness, right? It was the, the opposite of gentle, self-control. Nope, it wasn't those things at all. And, and God was, was trying to tell me that, that I was wrong in the situation, that, that spirit-led people will, will actually produce fruit that is associated with the spirit and that, friends, did not describe me in that moment. I actually behaved in a Good Friday kind of way. That my, my, my interactions with that family were not redemptive. In fact, the, the, I, I keep thinking back to the three small children. I was not a good Jesus representative to those kids, to that family. And on top of it all, here is my daughter right next to me, scratching her head like, what are you doing? And and. I needed God to, to sort of open my eyes to the fact that I messed up when auditing myself through a fruit of the spirit matrix that, that I began to understand how I had messed that situation up and how I, I just, it, it was a bad moment for me. And I, I think for all of us, it's, it's a really important reminder that there is this ingredient to pursuing and protecting unity, which is that we need to allow the Holy Spirit into our lives and to be the guide for what we say and what we do and what we think. That, that you know, it, it should be our framework. It should be our rules of engagement. And as we get to the end of our day, we should allow the Spirit to sort of search our hearts and, and ask, how, how did my words line up with what you 
would want me to do in my life with the fruit that you would want me to bear. You know, it's interesting, when you look at the New Testament and you look at those moments where, where Paul or another writer talks about division in the church, a lot of times he'll tag some adjectives along with it. You know, there, there's like quarreling and jealousy and anger and bitterness. And, and, and you look at those, those adjectives, none of those things pass the fruit test, right? Division happens when we fail to treat each other in ways that bear the fruit of the Spirit. But when we treat each other with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we begin to create spirit-fueled environments which lead to a unified culture. Now, all of this kind of spins naturally into the second thing that I, I want us to consider today about how to pursue and protect unity. And I, I would say that we also need to understand that words matter. Words, words matter greatly. We've had opportunity in the series to look closely at the book of James. James was the brother of Jesus, and he wrote this really practical book to the early church or letter to the early church. And I want us to just take a look at a small passage from that letter that I find quite striking about how we are to leverage our mouth, our tongue, and our words. Listen to this. It says, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. See, friends, what you say and how you say it it matters. James doesn't sugarcoat this. There, there is no, you know, he doesn't lighten this at all. That Our words are the, the very rudder that can change the trajectory of our lives. And it touches so many areas of our lives. Our words can change the direction of our marriages, of family dynamics, of family relationships, of friendships, of even relationships in our workplaces. This is true in so many ways that, that what you say is important and the truthfulness of what you say is important and the, the tone even in which you choose to say things is vitally important, that our words can be the rudder that changes the tra trajectory of our lives. And, and friends, that even means our church, our, our resurrection tribe, our community. In the past, I've had the privilege of serving in three other churches before I came on staff at Heritage. And I've seen this, I've lived this, where, where trajectory of a church was often determined by what was shared in a small group or, or maybe a, a huddle in the lobby or, or nursery workers, you know, on duty. I, I've seen how the culture of the church could be defined by toxic conversations. I've seen how the tongue through the misuse of words can be the first spark that just burns the culture of a church down. It can be so damaging. And I know this, this can be such a temptation for all of us that to, to leverage our words correctly. But we have to understand that words matter and, and to get into the habit of running through a fruit of the spirit check, to run the choice of our words, the tone of our words, the timing of our words through a, a fruit of the spirit matrix, that, that can really help us. That our, our words are powerful little things that have significant ripple and it, it can serve as a double-edged sword even in our lives where we certainly and hopefully we are using our words for good, for edification, for building up. But we can also use our words to absolutely 
destroy the cultures and the families and the, the environments that we're in. So let's be careful about how we use our words so that we are always, always, always pursuing and protecting unity with what we say. Now friends, there, there's one other thing that I wanna talk us through today. There's, there's several different ways that we can pursue and protect unity, but this is just kind of one that I felt like God was, was steering me to. And, and I would say that we need to stay laser focused on our purpose. That this, is, this is a way that we pursue and protect unity by staying laser focused on our purpose. You know, another one of our anchor scriptures throughout the series, we've, we've actually read it every single week so far, so we're gonna keep that going, but it's, it's Acts 1-8. It's the very last thing that Jesus says before he ascends to heaven, and he says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Christ, we are called to greater purpose, which is just extraordinary, right? We, we don't just gather to gather. We actually gather to be equipped to live as the sent people of God, that we, we are called to share Jesus with this world, that we are called to be his representatives to our communities, to our neighborhoods, and to these cities. Now, I love the way that New Testament writer Scott McKnight says this. He, he says that, that this is what the Christian life is all about, learning to love one another, by the power of God's grace so that we can flourish as the people of God in this world. And that first sentence is really the unity piece, but then he gets to purpose. And he says, the purpose of the church is to be the kingdom in the present world. And the Christian life is all about learning to live into that kingdom reality in the here and now. I, I love this. This is such an exciting description of, of what we get to do as the people of God. It's actually so amazing to me that God invites us into this, that, that God would invite someone who would roll down his window and yell at a stranger, right? And insert your own Good Friday problem, you know? We, we've, all, we've all sinned, we're all broken people, and God invites us into this idea of we can establish the kingdom of God here on earth. This is who we get to be. This is what we get to do. And my prayer is that we would retain a laser-like focus on this responsibility to be the kingdom of God in this broken world because this, this focus will allow us to sort of let distractions that might tempt us to divide, that, that kind of leaves it uh, in, along, along the sidelines, it fades away, that, that we stay focused as the sent people of God. You know, we are, we're in the midst of a, a learning group cycle here at Heritage, and the learning group that I'm helping and, and participating in, it's a, it's a class called Long Story Short, and it's, a, it's based on a book written to give sort of like a 30,000-foot view of the, the scriptures. And so there's six chapters, and it goes through the, the big, big chunks of biblical history. So it starts with creation, goes to the fall, goes to Israel, goes to Jesus, goes to church, goes to new creation. And uh, I'm reading ahead in the book, and I'm, I'm reading the portion on the church, and the author just gives this really beautiful and compelling parable about, uh, about how we are positioned as the church to live in this world. And it was really thought-provoking to me, and I, I kind of wanted to walk us through it, because it, he talks about how we need to you know, imagine, again, this is a parable, but to imagine that somewhere around where William Shakespeare used to live, that there are the remains of an old 16th century English pub, and in the basement of that pub, 
there is found to be a manuscript, a very old manuscript, and under more review, it's found to be an authentic Shakespearean play, but this play has never been read or seen or performed by anybody. It's brand new to everybody. And so you can imagine the excitement of finding such, such an item. And as you read this play, you realize that it's, it's not just a Shakespearean play, but it's one of his best. It's a masterpiece. It's, it's, it's just awesome. But there is one catch to, to the, the whole scenario, and that is that the first four acts of the play are intact, and then the very last page is intact, but all of the final act except for the last page, is, it's just completely gone. It's, it's you know, it, it probably was destroyed or something. I don't know. It's just gone. And so imagine that a very risk, you know, risk-taking theater owner brings together all of the best Shakespearean actors and what he decides to do or what she decides to do is to uh, allow this play to be performed as written, you know, the, the very beautiful first four acts, but then to allow these great Shakespearean actors to improv all the way to the final page. Just complete improvisation. Can, can you imagine going to a play like that? You know, every night would look different depending on which actors were in and how they interpreted the, four, the first four, you know, acts of the play and, and how they felt like the, the final act, you know, the final page, what that meant. There was this big space for them just to do whatever they wanted to do. And my guess is there would be times where you would go to the theater and you would see a really compelling and, and very congruent story but then there might be other times where the actors just don't quite get it right. Maybe they interpret the first four acts wrong, and you get a very incongruent, almost a dud of a show. And then the author of this book, Long Story Short, then makes the argument that this is such a great depiction of who we are as the church. And I, I love this. It's such a beautiful thought because there's this idea that, yeah, you know what, we have a lot of the re biblical history. We, we have the framework. The, we have sort of the first four acts, so to speak, but somewhere along the way, around the book of Jude, early Revelation, the scriptural story just fades away. We know what happens at the end, but, but there's this wide open gap where, where we, don't have, we don't have a written story. We have our story, and that God calls us to be actors who are willing to engage in sacred improv, that we would take the, the first four acts, that we would take the scriptures and look at how the scriptures have set up the story, but now God is calling us to advance the story of the scriptures in a way that's congruent with the rest of the story, but also with some room to move and groove and, and be our own people. It's, it's such a beautiful picture of what we get to do. And it takes a cast of characters who are willing to be unselfish with each other, a cast of characters who are willing to, to give and take and, and to, to work together to make the story as beautiful as possible, it, to remember that we are children of the living God on purpose for the living God, and that we must stay intensely focused on the role that we are called to play as agents of grace. And that this helps us stay together in the story. And it helps us to tell a story that's congruent with what's already come before, that, that we are passing along the, this, uh, the story of Jesus, the, the story full of freedom and love and mercy. This all 
is so beautiful and it helps us stay unified and in harmony as we play out our part of the story then, the really beautiful part is then we get to invite our kids and our grandkids and their kids and their grandkids to begin to, to start their own sacred improvisation, to, to begin to, to step into the story of redemption and to create new stories that are congruent with what's come before. It's a, a really beautiful picture of who we get to be as the people of God, as a resurrection tribe. Because we are resurrection people. We are fueled by Holy Spirit power. We are united with our resurrection people and we are set apart for a resurrection purpose. We are called to more. And because the what of our mission is so vital for this world, may we be a tribe that passionately pursues and fiercely protects the unity that can be found in this body between each other. Well, this gets us down the road to the so what moment. It's gonna be very quick, it's very simple. I just simply wanna leave you with a question this morning, kind of to echo the way that Pastor Sean has been leveraging the so what moments the last couple of weeks. But here's the question, in what way or ways is God asking you to pursue or protect unity? Kind of a, a real-time question. What, what is he asking you to do right now? What's the next step for you? And I think this is such a beautiful question to ask, uh, to take home and, and to begin to think about, even in your own time, your own quiet time with the Lord, to ask him to reveal, what, what is it that I need to do? Maybe for some of you, it's you need to have a, a difficult conversation. Maybe you need to uh, say sorry to someone that you had an engagement with that wasn't quite fruit of the spirit worthy. Or maybe you need to actually receive an apology from somebody. Uh, maybe you need to... to really start to, and I think this is really for all of us, but, but we need to perhaps start to look at all of our actions through a fruit of the Spirit framework and to see, to ask God to show us where are those words not lining up and not producing the fruit that a Spirit-led person should produce. And maybe for some of you, it's just simply getting laser-focused on purpose and to start acting as a representative of Jesus in this world, to act as an agent of grace to your communities and to your to your work environments, to, to your spheres of influence, where do you need to lean deeper into pursuing and protecting our unity? Because what we communicate with our unity is so important for the world to see that, that our unity actually, think about it this way, that it is an Easter people gift that we extend to a divided Good Friday world and it communicates Jesus' ability to restore and transform our minds and our hearts and, yes, even our relationships. So let's love each other well because that is the fuel that allows us to share the love of Jesus in our neighborhoods and in these cities and in the world around us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and your mercy I thank you for your own patience with us. And I would just pray, God, that you would help us, each of us, to start to think about our actions and our words and our attitudes through this fruit of the spirit matrix that, that we would become truly, that we would become spirit-led people. And that in those situations, Lord, where we behave in Good Friday ways, help us to be quick to say sorry. Help us to be quick to, to go back and, and say, I was wrong. 
Help us to respond in a, a fruit of the Spirit kind of way. And above all, Lord, would you help us as a body of believers to just absolutely and fiercely fight for our unity, to protect it, to pursue it with everything that we are. God, I, I love Heritage Church. I, I, I love this, this body of believers. It, this church has meant so much to me over the years, and I, I just pray, God, for a, a, just a special anointing of unity in this place, that we would step forward together in harmony, in alignment, in unity, to step into your preferred future, to be on, on mission for you, to be the sent people of God. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us first, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.